0: Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence.
1: The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of The Nuclear View. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther, along with Curtis McGiffin, Jim Petrosky, and today we have with us a great guest, of course, that is Chris Stewart, he is a, you know, he was a B-1 pilot, couldn't hack it in the Air Force. So then he tried writing books, couldn't hack that either. And then he was a congressman for a while, couldn't hack that either. And now he's part of the National Institutes for Deterrence Studies, and he's working with the Small Business Consulting Corporation. And we like to call him former Congressman Chris hey, Stewart. Hey, how... Welcome how
2: low do you have to be to fail out of congress for heaven's sakes that's an incredibly low bar
3: <laughs> apparently it's this age yeah
1: that's
2: right. <laughs> honor to be with you
1: so well it's good good to have you and you know i've i've read a couple of your books and and so for those of you that don't know chris you know he was a b1 pilot then he was a you know he's a successful author and he's written both fiction and nonfiction, and the fiction's good. But I actually thought your more recent nonfiction book, I was like rooting for. Yeah. I was like, hell yeah, that's that's true. Of course, yeah. that's right. <laughs> and so the, I thought that was a a good one. So, but today we're not here to talk about you. Uh, we're here to talk about somebody who's been around a few years longer, and that is, of course, the United States Air Force. It it was their, what, 78th birthday here 46. recently? 76th birthday here this week. And so we wanted to wish the Air Force happy birthday. And we wanted to talk about, over the last almost eight decades now, sort of this evolution of the Air Force nuclear mission. And we thought we would do that. We'd kick it off with you, Curtis. Can you give us, start us off with a little history lesson on
3: this Air Force nuclear mission. All right, Adam. Well, thank you very much. Always good to see you, Jim. Good to see you. And Congressman, welcome to the team. Um, so, you know, the Air Force uh, used to be the youngest service. I don't think it's that anymore <laughs> now that we have Space Force. Um, but, uh, you know, the many people think that the uh, that the Air Force was born on September 18th. 1947. And that's the that's the day we celebrate, right? Because that's the day that the National Security Act of 1947 sort of took effect. That law was actually signed on July 26, 1947. And it not only created the Air Force, but it also created the National Security Council and the CIA, uh, among a few other things. And what it did is, is uh, you know, after World War II and, you know, we're drawing down and trying to figure out what to do with all of this equipment and get ready for what was going to become the Cold War. Uh, we basically sort of took all of these systems that were part of the what was then the Continental Air Forces um, and sort of created this uh, Army uh, slash Air Force um, um, uh uh, fetus if you will and and what we have is 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 even in 1946 is when sac was built right strategic air command so it was it's older than if you will the air force itself and so what in, what inevitably happened was is these forces were divided amongst the strategic air command the two newcomers which were air defense command and Tactical Air Command. And then they joined what was already existing in the Air Transport Command. And these basically formed the strategic tactical defense and airlift missions that begin the Air Force, as as it were. It's uh, interesting to note here, uh, you know, because of how we look at the Air Force, at least we do here at NIDS, we sort of focus on the nuclear stuff and therefore strategic. Air Command, which I mentioned was actually started in 1946, it started with only 37,000 people in the uh, what was left of the Army Air Force. And by 1960, SAC was up to 207,000 airmen in, in Mother SAC. And that was part of an Air Force that was nearly 815,000 in 1962. I'm sorry, 1960. And thinking about that, the Air Force actually peaked in 1968 at 905,000 airmen. And think of this, our population in the United States was only 196 million. So there were a lot of people in uniform in those days and, uh, and, and, and putting things together. And then, of course, from that, the Air Force uh, dwindled down all the way to 2015, when it leveled off at 311,000. Now, today it's built back up to about 337,000. But what's interesting to note is Air Force Global Strike Command today is about the same size as SAC was in 1946, about 35,000 people. So it's kind of interesting uh, how that sort of all works its way through. In 1960, we had almost 2,200 bombers. And 1,200 tankers. Can you imagine all of that iron uh, on, uh, you know, uh, floating around out there, if you will? Um, we, we peaked in our ICBMs at, uh, at 1,054, and that held steady for two decades. Uh, and, um, and, of course, the numbers uh, continued uh, to rise as well in the 1960s. We had almost 5,500 fighter aircraft as part of that air defense mission. So a lot of things over the history of the Air Force. The last thing I want to mention is where has the, what has the Air Force been doing, right? So our first big show was the Berlin Airlift. And then we see the Korean War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Vietnam War, El Dorado Canyon, Operation Urgent Fury, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and the follow-on of Southern Watch and Northern Watch operations, Desert Fox, Provide Comfort, Operation Allied Force in the Balkans and I have not even made it to the 21st century. Now we're in the 21st century. We look at Operation Noble Eagle after 9-11 and of course, Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom. We, not to mention all the humanitarian aid projects and support that the Air Force has provided over the years. And then finally, you know, the, the, the split, if you will, uh, as U.S. Space Force, where we, we begin to, uh, to, to look at space the same way we were looking at the at 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 the air component and its technology in 1947, we said it had to be separated from the army. Well, now in 2020-ish, we make the same decision with space, and we sort of say it needs to have its own concentration, and therefore space stands up. So that's a quick and the uh, the dirty history lesson. I hope that works for you, Adam. Why,
1: thanks, Curtis. Now, Jim, how about a few uh, sort of critical technical milestones? Well, I'm not sure about technical milestones, but I am going to be a little bit technical
4: with Curtis there because he talked about the beginning of the United States Air Force. But when I look back at my history, I see the United States Army Air Service. OK, for those that know, I retired from the Army in 2004. And so I always thought of the Air Force's, the United States Army Air Service. They've just sort of made a mistake somewhere 70 some years ago and separated from the oldest, by the way, uh, military service in the United States. I just wanted to point that piece out. Um, I'd be remiss in, in, in uh, also not stating, though, that the Air Force gave me 18 wonderful years of civilian Teaching at the Air Force Institute of Technology, uh, and there I learned, you know, putting all, you know, kidding aside, how incredible uh, the Air Force has been at advancing the service in terms of their technical capability and their strategic view. I think the first time I even thought about fighting war strategically was at the Air Force uh, Command and General Staff College or I guess Air, Air Command and Staff College um, when I was assigned there as one of the mighty 44 uh, added other services while I was there. And I was quite impressed with the professionalism and capabilities and technical abilities of the Air Force officers I got to work with. And uh, I returned to the Air Force at Affitt, uh many years later with that, uh, with that view, excited to be there. So 18 years for me. They're slightly off in the uh, in the dates for this birthday because I think they got a really really good start. That's why they've been so successful. Um, last, I want to I have nothing else really to add here except I would be remiss also in not welcoming uh, former Cong- Congressman Chris Stewart to us as a group, us as a podcasting. I'm looking forward to hearing from you on your experiences with the Air Force. So turn it back to you.
1: Thanks, Jim. So. Chris, go ahead.
4: Yeah, thank you. Uh, what, what what a pleasure.
2: What an honor. It's going to be fun to be with you. Uh, you you might have noticed I was outside on my deck and it started to rain. I had to come, come inside here. So I thought that'd be distracting if you're sitting there watching my hair get wet. Uh, uh, if I had my jacket on, I wear uh, a set of miniature wings on my lapel that were actually my dad's wings. He was a pilot in World War II. Uh, he had five sons who served in the military, four of us in the Air Force. And I think we've got 12 or 13 now of the next generation who's serving in the military. Oh, wow. So the wow. military is just deep in our family DNA. Uh, and, you know, to be able to come on and talk to you about, you know, I'm true blue. Look, I'm an Air Force guy. I obviously love and respect my fellow my fellow brothers and sisters in, you know, in the Army and the Navy and the Coast Guard and the Marines. But, you know, I got a special place in my heart, obviously, for the Air Force. You know, I remember I'd be out flying and I'd go, I can't believe they pay me to do this. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I never felt that way when I was in Congress, not, not even one time. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but and it was only three days ago that I was in Congress. Uh, and, uh, you know, I remember uh, two weeks ago we were taking a vote. And on the floor of the Congress, if you looked up on the side of the wall, kind of above the gallery, you can see all 435 members, their names will light up, and you can see how they voted, yay or nay. And I remember this was a, this was a bill that had to do with national security. I won't I won't go into what it was, it doesn't really matter. I'll just say it was a defense-oriented bill. And I looked at the people and how they're voting, and I was going, okay, veteran, 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 veteran. You could see that the veterans were united. We bring a different perspective to Congress. And honestly, we need more of it. I mean, I think it's 11% of Congress is veterans now, or have any military background. At a time, ironically, when we've essentially been at war for the last generation, as the global war on terror has taken place, and uh, and I worry sometimes that our national leaders don't have the military experience that they should, and that and, and we want to encourage more and more of our veterans to become engaged with that. Um, I I thought Curtis, your review of of the air force and the numbers and the peaks of you know having nearly a million members in the air force, like you said, like one out yes. of one out of 130 people that had been a, a air force veteran or served in the military that or in the air force that was that was crazy. Uh, but uh, last thought on it, and that is when we look at when we look at potential conflicts around the world, and and unless we're foolish, we should look at potential conflicts around the world and recognize that the world has changed and that it is changing, you can't diminish the importance of air power. Uh, A potential conflict in the South China Sea, which I think we should be preparing for with great urgency in order that we could deter that, hopefully. But if we can't uh, bring power to bear, obviously naval forces is a critical part of that. But naval forces without air power is nearly meaningless. And uh, and I hope we can support our war fighters and continue to support uh, you know our, our brave brothers and sisters in in the Air Force and the and the incredibly important work that they're doing.
1: You know, it's it's funny to you know have you, Jim, talk about the oldest service and Chris talk about air power. As I, I as a Navy guy, I would just like to point out that that we have our own Air Force and we have our own Army. And so therefore, we can fight the air war and we can fight the land war in Asia. So you guys just sit back, watch how it's done. The Navy will show you how, and then just adopt our practices and follow. Well, us. not only that, but they'll they'll so come I'll back just... <laughs> and
2: make a Top Gun movie about it to make y'all look like heroes too.
3: So. <laughs> as long as we're within 100, 100 miles of the shoreline, yeah. right?
4: <laughs> But what? But what is interesting after I sort of grew up and started looking around because I was uh, you know I mentioned the Army used to have its own its own nuclear uh, weapons, and of course they've moved away. We start looking at two legs of the triad. You know, fall under the Air Force and you start looking at that strategic value of having that there is incredible. How much how much force is put into this one service is incredible. And the responsibility when I when I talk to people, especially pilots, they talk about flying around with this capability in, you know, invested in them. It's incredible how much is really placed there, and most people don't see that. So, you know, I'll talk up the Air Force today. You know, we'll do that. We'll talk differently on the Army's birthday, but anyway, today I'll talk up the Air Force because it is. It's really impressive to see that, and not only the not only the strategic risk, but also the strength and power uh, given to the people and the authority, but also the responsibility that's there. And maybe that's what's making these military members in Congress have a different view. Of how we are how how we are running our country and operating its defense uh, for the nation, so we are free to be the people we are.
3: So, if I could just add to that uh, really great assessment, when we think about how young these troops are. I mean, we these are lieutenants sitting in the missile silos, right, with a responsibility of turning keys. Uh, it, it, should America's deterrent be called into action? From the uh, ICBM side of this argument, and we have lieutenants flying bombers and tankers and and other aircraft. These are young twenty something year olds, right? Often flying the same tail numbers that their grandfathers flew, and um, uh, if you will, and and these are something that I think still is is, is astonishing to me that we've been able to keep these systems, uh, nurse them along for as as long as we have. And uh, and of course, there's a bill to pay on that now, right? And so the procurement holiday is over. We've got to we've got to modernize the not only the nuclear uh, the nuclear enterprise, but but we see that there's a lot of effort to modernize the conventional side of this with uh, with the joint all domain uh, operational concepts with uh, unmanned aerial uh, aircraft, combat aircraft, and and uh, and other things like this. Uh, that we're we're really seeing uh, these sort of technological advances to the point now where uh, as a former navigator, you know, my job was sort of whittled away with technology, but we'd have never probably would have hard pressed to think that the actual pilot job would be lost at some point (laughs) as well. Uh, But that's where we're going.
2: You know, uh, if I could jump in, there's two things, uh, Curtis and James, that you both have said that I think I was talking with someone about this last week, and that is the, the different responsibilities and the different uh, orders of leadership between, I think the Air Force and, and probably the Marines and the Army are the best uh, best to contrast. I mean, uh, Curtis, like you were saying, you take, you take young uh, lieutenants and you give them, you know, literally the keys to a missile silo. You put them in a, you know, a $400 million aircraft like I flew when I flew the B-1. Uh, you put them in a formation, a combat formation with 85 aircraft, incredible responsibility. Uh, but on the other hand, you take a, a 19 or 20 year old squad leader, uh, give him 12 men know. and put him in Fallujah. I mean, that is a type of leadership that I never experienced. It, it just, uh, and and I think it's the most intense type of leadership that I can personally imagine. Uh, and, and very young people. And you watch those teams develop and how they, how they grow and fight together. I mean, it, there just isn't a better example of human interaction and leadership put in place and put to test. Um, and, you know, Adam, your point, you're kind of dogging us about the Marines having not at all. Uh, And I get that. Uh, But uh, but, you know, the experience Marines have in in leadership and combat is is really, truly unique as well. And and it just brings out the very best of these young people that are already the very best Americans that we have.
4: Yeah, I find it. I find it interesting that we have difficulty recruiting uh, younger people, because when you talk to younger people about the experiences that we've had, and the awesome, like I said, responsibility, but also the challenges we faced and the excitement we had. You know, you said, you know, you couldn't believe you got paid to fly around in an aircraft, uh, you know, and, and did that. I always felt that way, a little weird probably to you, but when I was out in the woods li- living in a tent, and, and and leading soldiers i couldn't believe i was getting paid to do that you know i'd come home and my wife said you want to go camping it's like yeah i'll go back out camping because that's what i enjoyed but the point is that we did what we enjoyed and we did it for our country and for a good cause and when you talk to young people about that when they hear about that they seem to be very interested. I'm just trying to figure out why we don't find that niche to to capture people in that way. Because there, I've been impressed with a lot of the young people that I talk to. When you get you know get involved with them and get to know them well, it's amazing what what we can do with people. Yeah, you
2: know, I'm. I, I'm deeply troubled by uh, our recruiting efforts right now, as we all are, and and frankly don't understand it. I remember uh, several years ago talking to the commander of Air Combat Command and and saying, you know, the when I was young, the coolest thing you could imagine was flying jets, right? You know, and and Top Gun, and and the whole aurora or or around it was, you know, very positive. And I said, I don't get why you know do young people just not feel the same. And he said, No, they actually don't. They just, you know, they don't feel the same way. Well, I don't understand that, but I but I. But I do think there's this, and I want to be careful because I don't want to politicize a conversation here that doesn't need to be. But the thing I worry about is our culture just doesn't appreciate the exceptional nature of our nation. And if we teach our young people, there's nothing really great about America. There's nothing really extraordinary or positive about America. And if you teach them that in school and in the media and in social media, I mean, how how can you be surprised when they're 18 or 19, if you ask them, well, do you want to go serve your country, that a lot of them will, you know, will say no? I mean, uh, the, the key to this is to restore the patriotism and the pride that generations have had in our country and recognizing, yeah, we're not perfect for sure. We all know that we're not perfect. Never have been, but we try to get better. And America's worth defending. And, uh, and we need young people who feel that way. So that they will want to serve, whether it's in the army and, and James, as you were saying out leading, leading men in the woods, or whether it's leading a flight of F-35s that they want to serve and have those experiences.
3: If I could just add to this, I know Adam's <clears throat> ready to jump in here, but having commanded a recruiting squadron uh, was my was my only command while I was on active duty. I, I got to kind of experience a little bit of this firsthand. And um, I think what I found, and this was during the Gulf, uh, I'm sorry, during the, Iraq war, this 2004, 2006 frame, And, um, uh, it, it was always interesting that what motivated the young, these young folks, some of them were, were about getting engaged in, you know, post 9-11, you know, sort of thing. Many, it's the family business. Chris, you mentioned now uh, your brothers, it's the family business to serve. Right. And, um, and, and then there is the issue of, well, what can I get out of it? And, and, and I look back at, you know, the 76 years of this Air Force time frame. all of the Americans who have not only gained this experience of, of service, but, of course, the patriotism that's ingrained in them when they leave. Um, but it's the technological education, the, uh, the GI Bill, the, all of these things that go on to benefit the nation even after they're done serving. These the generally veterans, retirees will go out and they'll take on these roles. They'll run for Congress. They'll they'll take on roles in business. They'll become uh, uh, they'll, they'll go and teach in academic institutions um, and, uh, and 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 go and get more education and, and get into business. And some will open flower shops and all of it is good uh, in that regard, because I think you create a different kind of citizen. Uh, uh, when, when you, when you put someone into the service, in this case, the air force, and then after four, six, 15, 25 years of service, they come out sort of a different human being, um, than they might've otherwise been. Uh, and as I, and I, and so the, the kinds of things that we do to encourage Based on this all volunteer service that we have is incredibly important um, because, you know, is, you know, I like to say that it is it's it's not uh, production dates that matter. It's birth dates that matter. And we've got to make sure we have the right people. I I wanted I wanted to make a a slight
4: change to what we're talking about, because I really like to get this question answered sort of on on the air. But, uh, Chris, I was I was wondering, you talked about your family's legacy in the Air Force. Did you ever get a chance to either fly on or fly any aircraft that was flown by uh, one of your other family members? Uh, actually, I did. This goes way back.
2: Um, one of my older, uh, older brothers was a, was a pilot. and He volunteered to fly special ops, to fly combat rescue helicopters and actually convinced me to fly. Ooh. A helicopter as well, do go into special or a, a combat rescue before I flew the B one, uh, and there was a, a couple times when I w- I was at Langley Air Force Base at the time, and we flew a we flew a helicopter that he flew. Now that's not the same thing as my dad. You know, my dad started out with a Jenny, you know, the bi-wing fabric fabric <laughs> uh, wing Jenny, and the last thing he flew was the F eighty six, and uh, and then I put him in the B one once and. Uh, well, his reaction was a lot like my reaction when I sat in the F thirty five. I mean, it's just generations of difference of, of change. Uh, hard hard to imagine the changes that we you know we see between uh, in, in technology. I mean, there's no better a- demonstration of that than you see in aviation. Obviously,
1: sure, sure, that's incredible. You know, it's it's interesting. So the Air Force is the you know it's it's. Aircraft are the oldest they've ever been. It's the smallest it's ever been. And if, as we think about sort of the, you know, and General Brown, CQ Brown, has said that the Air Force is not ready for conflict with China. And we're trying to modernize, we're trying, you know, to get the F 35 online, to build, you know, to build the B 21, to build Sentinel, all of these things but it sort of goes back i think i see a tie to the nids original mission which is deterrence and it's not just nuclear deterrence it's not merely deterring the use of nuclear weapons by an adversary with our nuclear weapons but it's this idea of you want to fight less and fewer conflicts because right now we're in a we're expecting tighter budgets And part of that means that our ability to recapitalize an old small Air Force just really isn't there. And so it sort of goes, you know, one of the things that I've been given a lot of thought to is the Weinberger Doctrine and how I wish the United States would formally adopt the Weinberger Doctrine as as a requirement that you have to walk through before you go into conflict because it's once you've spent six or eight trillion dollars in Iraq and Afghanistan and you pull out and have nothing to show for it or all of these other things that we do and you burn hours on your jets and, you know, you burn hours on your tanks and you do all of the things that you do that force you to recapitalize and that and cost you, you know, six or eight trillion dollars. And then you say, oh, geez, man, we're old, we're small. And we don't have the money to recapitalize. So there, there sort of needs to be more forethought into what matters, what is a vital interest, wh- what is worth, you know, putting ourselves in a position where we have the, you know, the oldest, smallest fleet we've ever had because we're going to spend our money, you know, burning gas to haul stuff, you know, six thousand miles away. And that's one of the things I think is also important as we, you know, we, we sort of started this to talk about the Air Force birthday, but there's this bigger, broader picture to contemplate. And I'll just sort of throw that idea out there. And Chris, did, well, yeah, do you I, take I a, just a-
2: I just couldn't agree with you more uh, in many ways. And uh, look, a lot of times our military and our, our society, our nation has to fight the battle that's in front of us. We don't get to choose those battles. But I do think we need to measure the opportunity cost and the actual cost of these battles, and and then measure that against uh, how long we engage and what we hope to get out of it. And to use your example, Adam, you know, the I think there's been a a generational change in military members and military leaders thinking regarding, for example, and I I, I almost hate to admit this for a couple of reasons, but when you know, 20 years ago, uh, when I was serving. Actually, a little longer than that, and and we had the the you know first Gulf War, and then the the nine eleven attacks. Obviously, <clears throat> I was very supportive of those efforts, very supportive of of going into Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but then, but then President Obama started you know pushing us to get involved with Libya and then Syria and then some others, and many of us started to step back. I think I'm not alone in saying, okay, uh, we did what we thought we had to do at the time, but let's now measure our engagement and let's. And let's understand, you know, what the cost of that is. And, and I, I'm going to use the analogy of, sort of strain in the net and swallow a, a camel. Uh, I mean, we certainly did that when it came to we did not, while we were engaged with global war and terror, we did not keep our focus on the strategic challenges we have, specifically China. And it, and, it, and we had a delay of you know four five six years from when we should have been engaged with China. And in the meanwhile, we've as you said again, Adam, we've used up our military. We've spent a lot of money. We've used up our military families. I mean, we've worn them out with deployments. We've worn them out with challenges. And and I worry that uh, I, again, I'm not second guessing the the decisions we made. I'm just saying that we should measure those decisions and hopefully the lessons we've learned, for example, and apply those to Ukraine. And apply them to a potential conflict in China. Uh, if not, then we're just going to be ill prepared for those challenges.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I guess, you know, one of the things that, as I sort of observe, the advice that we get from the beltway intelligentsia that generally says we need to go do these things. I'm sort of at the point where I'm walking away nowadays and I say, okay, well, what does, what does the beltway intelligentsia say? And then just do the exact opposite, because that's probably the right decision. Yeah. just do the opposite. You, you
2: say that a bit tongue in cheek or sarcastically, but you're probably right. I mean, literally, you're probably right. <laughs>
4: uh,
2: and it kind of comes back to my uh, my earlier point about, you know, there's not many military uh, leaders or people with military experience who are making some of those decisions in Congress and and certainly in the administration and now as well.
1: Yeah. And the more I think there's an inverse relationship between the quality of advice and the number of harvard professors that have taken jobs in any administration yeah. they're they're inversely related yeah so so but but i, I guess i'll let, let me sort of ask a question for each of you you know everybody's had everybody here all four of us have spent you know significant careers in the air force and so let me ask before we wrap up what is what is sort of your absolute favorite Air Force memory? Your favorite Air Force memory. Let me let
3: me go to you first, Curtis. Uh, my favorite Air Force memory. Well, I think uh, I spent the first half of my career flying airplanes, sitting alert and doing things like that. And uh, the memories of being on alert of, of um, both in the EC-135 looking glass and in the E-4 NAOC, um, I think were some of the uh, greatest, uh, uh, col- uh you know, the, the times of your, di- when you're melding with that crew, when you have that crew, that crew dog relationship. But I also give an honorable mention to the, uh, to the years that I was an instructor teaching young, young navigators, how to be, you know, be navigators that, they, they, you know, th- to teach them how to do their, their mission to their, their craft. It is, it's a, probably one of the most rewarding, uh, rewarding things you can do uh, within the Air Force, I think, is to is to train your replacement, uh, to, to make sure that the force coming in behind you is better than the way you left it. Yeah. Uh, and I think if every airman looks at that, at their day, their job each day with that thought process, how do I make sure that everybody around me is better today than they were yesterday? Uh, I think we're a better force for it. Yeah.
2: All right. I think it's a great question. It's a great question to end on too. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to answer two questions. because you ask what's my favorite memory? I mean, that's hard to say, but I'm going to choose one. And I I think you mentioned Saddam. I'm not sure, but I hold three world speed records, including the fastest nonstop flight around the world and uh, flying around the world, carrying bombs, dropping them in different ranges. And just seeing the world in 36 hours was, uh, it was truly a humbling experience. I mean, it made me view the world differently uh and so that's clearly one of the favorite things i got to do uh i'm going to as i said cheat though, and, and rephrase your question a little bit and that's what's one of the most powerful memories uh cuz i think it might be appropriate to uh, to recognize that and that is and this is something that i think every one of us will relate to and that is putting my arms around uh, uh the wife of a dear friend and his children who uh who he 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 uh lost his life serving his country uh, seeing the seeing the you know the pain in their eyes, but seeing the faith in their eyes, and them feeling even in that heartbreaking moment, seeing that they were proud of their dad. Uh, it, it unimaginable would be to think of a child being losing their father for that cause, and the pride they must feel, and their dad chose to serve, and uh, and they will now pay the price for that service as they grow up without him. Uh, I mean, that was uh, that was something I'll never forget that the, the faith and the and the pride that they had in their father's service.
3: Yeah.
1: Goodman, Jim.
4: Yeah. Um, Adam. Whoop, yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah. So, I uh, you know, you asked me a question, sort of like maybe when I asked my grandkids, what's your favorite ice cream? Um, you know, there's so many of them. So, but I'm, I'm going to take a different different view than than Chris did. I'm not going to cheat and give you two. Um, so I gave some thought to this. Hey, so I, I, I was that, in the,
2: Congress. What did you expect? Right. <laughs> there you
4: go. Your five minutes is up. Um, anyway. <laughs> so, but uh, anyway. I, for those that, that know me, I taught at the United States Military Academy, uh, by the way, the, the first military academy. And I taught at the United States Military Academy. We always had an Air Force, you know, Air Force members that would go to the other uh, academies. We call them prisoner swaps, especially mm-hmm. at the uh, at the games. Uh, so uh, I had the pleasure of teaching a cadet. At the United States Air Force, uh, at the United States Military Academy, a cadet who later on came to Affit and got his degree at Affit, and he got his PhD there. And uh, and I got to uh, go to his ceremony for his PhD, and that was to me. I look back at the legacy, and you talk about experiences and looking back at what you've been able to help form. And he came to me, and you know, I was almost in tears. I sort of get choked up now. He said. You made me want to learn, and that's what that was what made my career. And again, not a pat on my back, because all of us have had these kind of experiences. And he got his PhD at Affit, but even more so, just to tell you how old I am, I got to watch him retire (laughs) because he got a job (laughs) at Affit and end up retiring out of Affit. And so my Air Force experience was. That I got an opportunity that the Air Force gave me as a civilian to continue to serve because that's what I wanted to do once I retired from the military, from, from the military, the Army, and uh, and, <laughs> and serve as a civilian in the Air Force um, uh, beyond that. And I thank you know, I, in, in ending sort of near the end of this broadcast, I want to publicly thank the Air Force for giving me that opportunity. And we've all had those opportunities throughout. And so this birthday means a lot to me because that would not have happened without the Air Force.
3: Very good. Adam, yeah. how are you,
4: Adam? it's a good one.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I was a enlisted guy in the Navy and what I loved most about the Navy was it, you know, I have two adopted brothers that are my, my brothers from the Navy that, you know, best man at the wedding, all that. And so whenever I left the military and went and taught at a civilian university for a few years, I missed the camaraderie. And so I made the decision to come back to teach in PME. And then in 2015, I was able to stand up the school of advanced nuclear deterrence studies out at Kirtland And that first SANS class, because we were, you know, we, I had like a month to build the school and, you know, work a curriculum. And then we traveled a lot. And the, it reminded me that small group that was, you know, the first group, we had a similar camaraderie uh, to, to what we had had, you know, whenever I was in the Navy. And so that was what I loved the most was that level of camaraderie and just that tightness in terms of, you know, friendships. And, and that's what I, you know, that was my probably fondest memory.
3: Right, I need to take issue with that, Adam, because you told me that the greatest <laughs> highlight of your air force career was the moment that I want. I walked up to you at national <laughs> defense university and, and introduced myself <laughs> to you in 2014 and said, I have a new deterrence class and we're using your book. <laughs>
1: That, that was like right there, right there. The real- <laughs> right there. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and it's funny because the military, you know, we're talking about recruiting. The military does so much to shape young people. I mean, for me as a Navy guy, leaving the Navy, I have ne- I was a sort of I would get mad and quit as a 17, 18 year old after leaving the Navy, nothing has ever been too hard. I've never quit anything <laughs> since. And that's what the that's what the military does for folks is it it takes boys and girls and turns them into men and women. And so, you know, happy birthday to the US Air Force. Happy birthday Air happy Force. Happy birthday Air Force. Yeah, close us out, Adam. Well, thanks gentlemen for for joining us and thanks to you, the listeners for joining us on this episode of the nuclear view. And of course, as always, we remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to this week's,
0: the nuclear view. We hope you found it engaging and valuable. The nuclear view is released each Wednesday and is a production of the national Institute for Deterrence studies, a 501 C three organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word.com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind
3: you to always Think Deterrence.